I got my like arm stuck under my knee while trying to switch out and then was stuck on the pole. And, and then like I was feeling, you know, starting to really starting to feel the burn. I was like, oh shit. And like, I was quite high up. Um, what kicked in was because the teacher was across the room dealing with someone else. I went, no, I shouldn't distract her actually. She's working right now. And I just stayed in that position, like locked in place. And it was like, I, I really don't want to make a fuss here. other one. I'm your host and kebab impersonator, Shandoxy. In this episode, I'm talking to Ian Lynham, who is a comedian, pole dancer, and writer-performer. I was really stoked to make a comedy friend who does pole, so we go on a massive tangent being mega nerds about alternative comedy, clowning, doing your weird stuff, and seeing if you can put it on a stick. We have a great time, and I regret nothing. We also talk about autism, expanding the definitions of masculinity, and performing to reveal who you are instead of masking who you are. Deep and fun. If you enjoy this episode and would like to help me keep making them, you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com shandoxy. You can buy the pod a coffee or give us a shout out on social media. Thank you, friends. For now, here's Ian. I remember the moment that led me to do pole was that um, in my undergraduate, I would have really, uh, would have mostly hung out with the, there was a big like demarcation between the comedy people and the theater people. It was very much, you were either someone who did stand up in clubs or you were an actor. I found we'd, we'd kind of make jokes about the um, the very artsy theater people and the way they do dance and acrobatics and, and all of these things. And it was only like right towards the end of my undergrad that I was like, mm, I think there's an undercurrent of envy here. So when I finally got to Edinburgh, I was just like, hmm, perhaps I could try to do the things that I'm jealous of uh, rather than just uh, stew on that. And, and and also a big factor was that I was in a different country, so I didn't know anybody who could like spot me doing pole. Yeah. So there was that like distance that allowed me to do it. So you were doing comedy beforehand and then you went to do a master's and that's when you started polling. Do you think that your performing experience as a comedian helped you when you started polling? In a sense, it did. I suppose a... Um a confidence point of view it was good that like you know pole like any other athletic thing like any other skill you're trying to cultivate you're there's going to be a really long period where you're really bad at it for a while and it mm-hmm. it does help to be able to like when you've fallen on your ass laugh it off and also I was like 
in in De- not not so much when I got back to Ireland, but definitely in Edinburgh for the whole year, I was the only boy in the class. So like, you kind of need to learn to acknowledge that, in, <laughs> and like you know, kind of occasionally laugh that off because it just becomes a bit of an elephant in the room after a while. <laughs> yeah, and look, I won't lie, I um, it was really disheartening for the first like, oh god, I'm not even gonna say first few weeks, like for the first three months, maybe even longer. Uh, mm. Like I remember sincerely considering not going after just the taster session that we did um for the for the reason that um in the taster session it was like about 11 people and we everyone just gave a go to one move and I remember it was um 11 people just trying to do the fireman and like it was a basic spin around uh and I, I just you know already being nervous about being the only guy I just decided to be the last person I just felt weird about insisting like and as a result obviously like the the pole was all like clammy and <laughs> humid by the time I got my hand on it so I would just like all right and then like slip right like, down oh, the floor instantly <laughs> what was it that kept you going back if it was quite challenging at first I guess um in terms of um body confidence and and perception of yourself like I um I only really was starting to realize in 2017 that I was on and off body dysmorphic um and I was kind of just about coming to terms with it that year um like uh like this was a really big deal for me but like for the entire time I was in college I had this big goatee um kind of like um Tom Green in the 90s style thing going right. on uh, and it was only like just at the end of college I realized that I was like oh like I had this perception that I had a really like bloated looking face and that was like my attempt at dealing with it so within a few weeks of starting in Edinburgh I shaved that off and that was like my first move towards that and I'd also realized that I, I just had this perception of of uh, myself as kind of very big and in the way of things uh, and I, I think it feeds into I'm I'm autistic I'm on the autism spectrum and uh, a very a part of the body dysmorphia I think came from like when you think of the like fetishized type of of autistic guy that's in the media um, if we're like the the Sherlock type if you will uh, skinny autistic people are the only type that exist on TV uh, so there's this very like um, uh kind of panic at the disco chic aesthetic going on for most of it so after a while your question is like is that is that what I'm meant to look like am I am I failing at at who I am as a person if I don't resemble that so that was that was kind of something going through the back of my head while I was starting out with pole but but I realized I really wanted to learn how to not just how to lift things and be strong but how to do things like you know gracefully and like in a very um, flowy way that like Paul really emphasizes. So from where you started and there was this process of recognizing a body dysmorphia and then working with that, do you think that over the time that you've been doing Paul since, has it changed your relationship to your body? Yeah, hugely. I would say um, like the way... um, I mean, even in terms of body language of like, I, you know, stand up a little straighter and things like that, but also I, um, 
uh, the biggest way I've, I think I've I've seen a change is is through the way I present in terms of fashion. Like I'm I'm I, this is the most heterosexual I've dressed in quite a while. To be honest, <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing check sh- a check shirt for listeners, but um, <laughs> the Ian came in character as a heterosexual yeah. for the people listening. Um, <laughs> and oh yeah, and I wasn't I, I wasn't out as bi until like a year ago. Yeah, a year ago thereabouts, and. Um, but I, but I noticed actually I, when I started coming back to, to Ireland to do stand up, um, ostensibly because I was a running gag in, in one of my bits was I was talking about the, the the paradox of the fact that like one of my comedy icons growing up was Jim Carrey, and then finding out that Jim Carrey was an anti vaxxer specifically because of the uh, uh, disproven vaccines cause autism thing. Uh, I would frequently wear a Hawaiian shirt and kind of joke about like, no, he doesn't get to have Ace Ventura. That's mine now. That's my thing. <laughs> uh, and, and initially it was a bit, but then I started wearing wearing more and more colorful clothes on, on stage <laughs> and, and ostensibly kind of joking about like, oh, well, what do you mean by you don't look What does that look like? Look autistic. But then after a while, I realized like, oh, this isn't a bit on stage anymore. I just I actually re- I rediscovered that I liked colors. And I realized that I kept that repressed through like much of my teen years that I just convinced myself that I liked the color black because slimming and uh, stuff like that. So uh, like I, I've got a very um, uh, Memphis design uh, Saved by the Bell, Bell thing going on nowadays. I think that's the, that's the biggest difference I've noticed. That's so cool. There seem to be quite rigid expectations on men and AMAB people in terms of self-presentation fashion, which you mentioned, and limitations on men in terms of how they can express themselves and behave. Mm. Do you think that being a pole dancer was part of what equipped you to like just smash through those? No, absolutely. Like I, I, I started, you know, I started wearing colors. I started wearing stuff like rompers and, you know, there, there's a sense where it's a, where, um, my my expression is somewhat gender non-conforming but also on another level i think um you know especially straight men aren't really taught to to value i guess they're they're you know you're you'd be taught to kind of in a sexual sense to value i guess your 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 value as a human to to produce to produce wealth, uh, you, you know, your, your economic value for whatever their word. And then you're like, your, your, your physical, your sexuality, uh, less so. Um, uh, I don't know if that's being expressed well. I don't want to, I don't want to, don't want to sound incelly, but. Um, no, no, I, I completely get what you're saying. My follow-up question is, do you feel you have more fun with gender now? Uh, yeah, I do. And like, uh, the reason I say expression uh, it is because like I have a lot you know I have many trans friends I have many trans neurodivergent friends and I know it's a common thing and like I, I definitely have had that moment of questioning it and it's just like no this is I, I very much um very much am a man this is this is the type of man that I am a man that like presents this way uh but and but like lastly in terms of just very basic stuff like i i could appreciate how nice my ass looks in a romper in a way that i couldn't before i did poll uh to to finish the tangent i guess about sexuality <laughs> i i can actually go oh no i look hot in this outfit and i want to i want to show that i look hot in in a mm. way that that i i i feel poll allowed me to see that in terms of gender i suppose and in terms of encouraging 
men to do pole i found the biggest appeal for me while i was increasing physical fitness and doing pole at the same time the thing that i found great about it is that i was getting strong but not training to beat the shit out of someone you know it was like i could appreciate my own strength and my own ability to do things but it wasn't towards like a conflict or or really a competitive like pole like i know there's pole competitions but it's not like it's not like there's a there's a pole team that carries the day so I found that there was something very collaborative about pole classes that everyone wanted each other to succeed on a certain move uh, and I find I guess with with men especially fitness based stuff it is very much kind of geared towards being the best so that would be like just one more thing I'd say in terms of 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 in encouraging people like me to give it a go you have a show coming up called autistic license at the dublin fringe which we don't even need to plug because it's sold out it's sold out but partially because of covid restrictions uh <laughs> but I, I don't want to read it down to but yeah it's um it's a solo show that's been in development for a while. I like I started writing it when I came back just around when I came back from Edinburgh, actually. And then I did the portrait of the artist, which was like a short 20 minute version of that. I don't want to preempt what is the like scaffolding of the show, but how did your experience of being diagnosed with autism become a central theme of your performance work like this? Okay, uh, yeah, like see, I'm I'm rather unique in well, in Ireland anyway, in, in Irish comedy. Um, because I am one of a very small percentage of autistic comics gigging currently that was actually diagnosed in childhood. It's like really common, yeah. the, the late, the, the adult uh, adulthood diagnosis, which is good, obviously, uh, because the people who are diagnosed in adulthood are the ones that um, usually escaped the notice of doctors or, you know, GPs that, that you know, usually women usually um or or uh just gender non-conforming kids uh uh which by the way is is why i will maintain it's bullshit when people talk about the autism epidemic and that it's like it's, it's like no the, the 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 diagnostic criteria changed to include like the, the the base number of autistic people in the world hasn't included hasn't improved uh, or increased it's just people are noticing more now mm. but in in terms of like i knew from the the beginning so i knew i started comedy knowing i was autistic and most of my comedy was very um it was very much about concealing that in, in a weird way mm. um because and i talk about this in my show a little bit i really saw comedy as a as a social phenomenon a social mechanism uh I, as as something that had an in group and an out group, and I desperately wanted to be in the in group, um, and I don't I don't think it was a coincidence that I was a lot more hashtag edgy when I started comedy. Like I had a lot lot more of those types of um, jokes that you would see perhaps is in certain clubs in London that I can't um, that name names mm. escape me. But you know um, the I, I guess my my definition of comedy was was very much like it wasn't just t-shirt comedy as i suppose it's called it was very much t-shirt comedy 
with the aim of convincing not just the audience, but anyone who encountered me that I was a t-shirt man uh, mm-hmm. and not to not to interrogate that further. It was about um, pretending to be another person that, that didn't really e- exist. Um, actually, the best way I can put it is, you know, like the, the, co- the contrast that a lot of people have between observational comedy and alternative comedy, i.e. like observational being, look at that, this is what I'm like, this is what I do. And alternative being like delving into, I guess, the, 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 the recesses of your weird innermost thoughts. For badgers me- and jam. Comedy. Yeah, for badgers and jam. Yeah. But for me as an autistic person like weird intrusive thought that was my everyday so for me doing observational comedy was really weird and alternative from my perspective and obviously that didn't transmit to the audience so when I was going like I went to the pub and drank a beer and kissed a girl what's up with that because that was so weird to me but like everyone else was like okay cool what I expected surprise whatever because I was like for one of a better word because I was passing as not autistic people were like what's the what's the joke <laughs> You mentioned the upsurge in people getting an A-spec diagnosis, autism, ADD, ADHD. Do you feel jaded now that everyone else is having their neurodiverse awakening and this is like old news to you? So yeah, that's the interesting thing. I did have a, a sense of um, of of jealousy, I suppose, because you have like much more of a grounding in yourself as an adult. If you find that, well, not you, you wouldn't actually have a grounding if you, if you, I suppose, you didn't know yourself. But that, like, um, th- the adulthood diagnosis. Um, now, I, I, I like, I'll, I'll say firstly, it is. I don't have a lot of patience for that idea of oh, what's the point of getting the diagnosis? It's just a label as an adult, you know. It it could be so powerful for people to to finally know the name for it. Um, it is also true at the same time. I, I definitely feel that when you've got the confirmed diagnosis as a kid, a lot of regular behaviors or regular emotional reactions to things can get attributed to your diagnosis when they might mm. just be standard reactions. So. I mean, there was a certain level of envy. I felt that, like, I wonder if I if I hadn't known that I was autistic, would I have like stopped myself from doing certain things? Would I have been afraid of doing certain things? So that like is a is a complex. Like at the same time, in my heart of hearts, I know what the struggle. Like, I I work for the National Autism Charity of Ireland as I am. I know oh. quite a lot about what undiagnosed autistic adults go through, and yeah, maybe they might reach out and do things that I wouldn't have done. But a lot of them develop like significant um, mental health issues. You know, um, a lot of it's such a common story for autistic women to end up in a psych unit at some point in their lives if they haven't been diagnosed for something else. Um, now, but having said all of that, I, I did feel a weird like, oh, I wonder how things would have uh, turned out. Uh, and then uh, lockdown happened and I, I found myself, uh, you know, I, I found it harder and harder to function on thing, function day to day in terms of my work. Uh, and then I found out I had ADHD as an adult. So it turns out <laughs> I got two bites at the apple. I did, in fact, get my uh, adult diagnosis moment. Having not interrogated at all, I just went, no, I don't want people to think I've got a disability. <laughs> Like, it was, like, I I genuinely thought that, yeah, for me, but but like, but I suppose because I'd gone through through so many years with with autism, knowing about autism and owning that, 
like I'd already like no longer considered it such a marginalizing thing but for some reason ADHD was like oh no no I don't want to mm. <laughs> and then I had the classic moment I think that all, all people have when they get a, an adult aspect a diagnosis which is um you know the psychiatrist was like um so uh you know you'll be late to things a lot I'm like oh right yeah yeah okay yeah that's that's news and he's like yeah and you probably don't sleep very well because you only get you know, you only get one REM cycle instead of two. And I was like, oh, that was ADHD. And it was just like a, a plethora of things that I thought was just like being messy as fuck that was covered under ADHD. And and then I had the moment that like, but and the, well, this is a final step that I don't think autistic people reach because a really important, you know, distinction is, you know, there is a medication for ADHD. There is no medication for autism. There's like lots of alternatives that are, that are prescribed, uh, quite a few of them not really effective and uh, might actually be damaging to the person but when I got on Concerta it was it was such a, a brainwave I, I didn't have that instant thing that people talk about but it was a it was a gradual being able to focus on things but the the biggest change for me was actually like go, going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning well like what a concept it was <laughs> A notion. <laughs> yeah, no, it was so weird. It was like I wake up at eight o'clock. It was like, wow, I don't feel like I want to die. This is <laughs> this is great. I'm asking because you you mentioned that your day job is working with an autism charity, which I didn't know before. When you're investigating perceptions of autism in your comedy, mm. do you feel an added level of social responsibility to dispel myths and take that on? Yeah, and like there's a there's a good chunk of stuff that I do that does dispel myths in stand up, but there's also like a leeway of um, uh, like okay, the best the best analogy I can think of with this is Fleabag, and like I know Fleabag does get used as like a catch all example of of this type of comedy, but you know yeah, it's, you know that scene where they they have the the convention where they're talking about like. I forget what the example was. It was something like, would you lose a few years of your life if you could have bigger breasts? And they, they both yes, put their hands up. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're bad feminists. Like, there are a few jokes like that where I talk about my very specific notes about autism would be like, oh, I think this way about myself. And it's like very much my interpretation is like, I know this is like really toxic and not something you should think of mm. in, in a positive way. But so it's that, it's that kind of like admitting that you're not, you know this isn't necessarily the correct view but it's the one that feels true to you in the moment mm. uh, but that is actually why i'm i've been very careful throughout the whole process like my 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 boss has my boss has got a comp to the show like the founder and, and ceo of the of the organization he will be going and they, they all knew that i was working on the comedy but i was so clear the whole way through not to even even when i was running the as i am socials um not to like in, interact with my work because it's so personal it's there because there's some subjective stuff that I was like I don't want that to, I don't want someone want someone to walk away with some of my jokes thinking that's what is the consensus on autism mm, mm. Uh, so like I, I do feel the responsibility in the sense that I, I um uh like like a running theme in the show it, it, it's it's the show autistic license it's kind of about masking aka like when you're concealing your autistic traits and it kind of plays around with a, a a somewhat toxic belief I had when I was younger which was that like anxiety was what was for want of a better word curing me like it wasn't curing me like in, in terms of 
I was basically like the fear of stigma and the fear of embarrassment was what was driving me to appear neurotypical in public. So um, it's it's expressing this idea that like, no, the anxiety is good for me. It's it's saving me. It's it's it's, mm. it's the right thing. And, and, and But it like that particular part is self-aware. That is something I'm kind of playing with. But um, I don't. I do have that worry that like a parent, for example, would watch something and go, oh, that's that's how my kid should be <laughs> and, and like instill it. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't want, want my, my show to be like autistic license, a production of. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it, you know it'd be, it, it would be like if, you know, if it'd be like a Fern's new show, Autistic Bikini. I mean, you know, if that was like sponsored by the National Autistic Society, it would just look odd. Yeah. Uh, also, comedy as a genre is the study of fucking up and vulnerability and falling short of yes. Um, yes. correct behavior as well. You mentioned the flea bag example. It made me think of in Sophie Hagen's one of their more recent shows where they had come out as non-binary. A lot of it was about how they misgender themselves. And um, yeah, it reminded me of the kind of pressure on a model minority to have to mm. act as an advocate for a stigmatized community. That doesn't really sit well with comedy where, you know, we're all dirtbags. <laughs> like, um... Yeah, who we are versus who we aspire to be. Like comedy, it's very, you know, to err as human, it's talking about the very very fundamentally unavoidably normal parts of ourselves in a pole dancing setting obviously everyone's experience of learning to pole is unique but if you were talking to an instructor or a studio owner and they're trying to make their space less ableist and be more mindful of how to make it a fun process for autistic and neurodiverse dancers. What would be your advice to them? I'm going to just try and find the correct phrasing for this. Because I was about to say, don't presume confidence, but that's like the opposite of what you're meant to do with <laughs> disability uh, stuff. But the, um, yeah, no, I have thought about this because I like, I briefly actually was um, in the year I came back from Edinburgh. I was a TEFL teacher for a while. I was, I was teaching English as a foreign language and a term that we were taught in terms of teaching mistakes to avoid it. We have a term called like flying with the highest, AKA, uh, you know, when you when you go through a lesson and make sure you're making sure everyone's got it right. If you choose the most talented member of the, you know, the, the most academically gifted member of the class, ask them if they get it and then take that as the exam, the answer that everyone has had in the class and then move on. You're leaving quite a few people behind. I think that that can sometimes happen with pole when they're like, they've done a move and they're like, does everyone get it? And they'll get one person to do it. Um, and, and like, I, you know, never want to be the one raising my hand saying like, oh, you know, can we do that one all over again? That that would be one thing I'd say. Um, the the other thing that I found that, and, and my, 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 my instructor was doing this quite a bit before Christmas. So it was, it was a really positive change, but I found just like recording a move like let, letting people record with permission, obviously record a move on their phone in video so that they can watch it back in, in, in real time on their own time to go over the steps. I found those two concessions could make an enormous difference for a neurodiverse person. And why would that be more useful to 
a neurodiverse person than a neurotypical person? Differences in, uh, and I, I, I say very clearly differences rather than deficits, because I know it can be interpreted as this, but differences in like receptive language, like, like, like for me, even basic stuff, like in terms of taking time to process, I find it much easier to see someone doing this with a right hand and a left hand in, in mm. real time. But like legitimately, if I'm going, <clears throat> if I'm going upside down and they're just saying like, oh, put your left hand there. I like I suddenly go like full like Zoolander. I can't turn left. Like I don't <laughs> know what hand is what. So like in that case, it would probably be physically. It would be. It, well, I've actually had cases where the teachers just moved the hand physically there. And yeah, I would find that easier. The key thing, and I think people misinterpret this when it comes to autistic people's receptive language and being able to hear something like Obviously, I know what right and left are, but like the application of it in real time can be like something that like I'm not able to process. Like I, I have the same I can have the same problem when I'm driving in terms of like just like, oh, go on the inside lane. I'm like, what the fuck is it? <laughs> like in the moment, I'm just like, what is inside? What is outside? Like in like that's so such subjective. What is <laughs> what does that mean? Just like the lane with the black car. Just tell me that and I can I can do that. Um it's the same answer I have for most form, forms of autism friendly practice is that what's good for autistic people is beneficial to everyone really um, mm. and can help people with a variety of support needs. So I think if you're, if you're, if from the outset, if you're implementing those things like uh, allowing people to record and showing and not just in directional terms, you know, not only will you be helping neurodiverse people, but you're probably going to be improving the experience for everyone in the class. Mm. I think that would be, yeah, that'd be my take on that. I mean, like an example of that is for, like, this is an extreme example, but the first time this was pointed out to me is like our sensory audits that we do in As I Am for like, what would sensory, sensory benefit uh autistic sorry people what's help. what's the sensory oh so, uh, sorry a sensory audit is where you go in and go like okay the paint's that color this smell is happening these lights are flickering and basically just ascertaining every sensory trigger that's in a room mm. and kind of uh, deciding accommodations like oh yeah we'll shade the lights we'll we'll cover this up we found that all of the recommendations for a sensory room that we had in the hospital were the same sensory things that would help someone with alzheimer's really, so really yeah so you can't yeah so in, in many ways even though the reasons for the need for the accommodation might be different, they could, there could be a huge ripple effect into, in, into different people. So similarly, um, I, I think it could be the same with how you teach. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Do you have goals that you're working towards with Paul? Uh, yeah, I actually, like a, a big thing with both Paul and comedy actually is um, I, I really admire, you know, physical clowny comedy but I, I have such a thing about like in terms of di disabled body movement like I, I you know I, I spent so long trying to make my language my body language as neutral as possible that like there's certain stuff that like you know I love Australian comedy in terms of of, of that whole genre of clownishness but sometimes I, I get an unconscious cringe from watching it because it just reminds me of stuff I do as a as a kid but like that whole school of like, um, you know, like Demi Lardner, John Luke Roberts, Elf Lions, like I really like that type and would like to explore that in the future. So I'm hoping, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be doing autistic license, I think, for a little bit while longer. And I want to explore the, 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 the outer limits of that show. But I want to do another show after that called Theory of Mime that will just be about... <laughs> Cool. you know a, a clown clowning and disability so that, that that's kind of the next big aim so I think that's the point where I'll finally see if I can unite pole and um and comedy 
this is cool and do you feel that part of building that I guess language in your body to take up more space is continuing with pole part of building up that set of your abilities yeah no I'd say in a big way like I I for me and I think for for most people who do pole it's like a continual education in what my body is capable of beyond what I really thought it was and you know it's it's learning your your limitations and your ability to surpass those it's it's an ongoing thing so yeah I think the more I go into physical comedy the more poles inevitably just gonna become an integral part of that I'm on a bit of a parallel process with that because what I found I really love about pole that I didn't realize at first is I love making really weird, unattractive shapes. I love the, the sort of, um, there's some batshit Russians basically who just do all these jagged, weird, sharp angles and it looks incredible. And for me, that's part of trying to break out of a lot of feminized behaviors that I've learned because Obviously, if blah, I don't want to wang on about it, but if you're from a like stripper background, the mm. whole knowledge that you've had in your head, and we don't have time for a whole episode about male gaze and hustle and that mm. kind of thing, but you will have really internalized ways of moving that correlate to a certain kind of gender presentation. So to explode that and make shapes look deliberately unnerving or ugly or unsettling is it's such a cool place to explore it with pole because you've got this apparatus that can just help you and yeah really support you doing stuff that's fucking unhinged <laughs> i love <laughs> that really fun that sounds yeah great. well one of the reasons i kept going after i stopped dancing in clubs is i felt that as a performer, I still have a lot of anxiety about taking up space on stage. It's a real, it's just mm. a nervous person thing of feeling like, oh, no, I made myself a small. So I wanted to do classes that would just give me permission to be big. I'm, I'm sure you've had this moment, but um, I remember both when I was doing comedy and when I was TEFL teaching, both people in the staff room and at the back of the room in gigs would be like, oh, Ian, we heard about this new club opening in Cork. You know, if the teaching or the comedy doesn't work out, you could do that. It's like, look, I guarantee dancing on a pole is way less demeaning <laughs> than telling <laughs> jokes in front of people. I can tell you from experience, I've done both of those. My parents have literally told me that they'd rather watch me do a poll show because they find it less uncomfortable than watching me do stand-up. Oh, yeah. yeah, and you can get a mortgage on one. <laughs> what are the projects coming up for you on or off the poll that you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, autistic license is it. There's not a lot of capacity to gig right now. That is... Mm. Uh, um well like this is the debut of autistic license so like I, th I suppose it's just going to be carrying that forward and um and and seeing where that goes but I had a show called Hades and Gentlemen where I just like come out in a toga once a week like I had guests on who would pretend to be either deities or dead people and like <laughs> we never properly agreed upon what was happening before it happened and like there was mayhem <laughs> oh it was it was such mayhem sounds like the perfect like tonic to mm. a really thoughtful and also very personal right i guess show yeah something that's like goofing around in a towel yeah because no because it keeps your curiosity alive like it, it keeps that, that that creative hunger going that's that's important ian thank you so much this has been such a great 
episode. Where can people find you online? And is there anything else that you'd like to promote or amplify? Uh, yeah, you can find me online at Ian Lynham Comedian on Facebook, uh, Ian uh, underscore Lynham on Instagram and Kixotic Clown like Don Quixote on Twitter because I was a really pretentious art student. You heard him, check him out. Paul the Other One was produced and hosted by me, Shandoxy, with original music by Amelia Baylor. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash shandoxy. You can buy the pot of coffee or give us a shout out on social media. Thank you. That is mega appreciated. Also, if any of these conversations inspire you to take a poll class or to get on stage, please tag us in your videos using the handle at poll the other one. Plus, whichever guest it was who got you on the hot rod. That would make our lives. Thanks for listening. Have fun on all your sexy stick adventures and see you later. Pull, pull, pull the other one.